Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So this episode, we are going to focus on the transition of the Beatles from doing a little bit of everything or almost everything to one thing for a little bit. Um, and it's something they created themselves. So by early 1964, the Beatles were very close to the most popular band in the world, certainly once they uh, debuted in the States in March. And there's, there's not a lot of, uh, certainly of the bands we think about today who are popular in the 60s, there's no one else who was really making music and, and reaching that mass audience at this point yet. So we're talking like early, you know, winter, spring, 1964. And they were also, as, as uh, you and I were talking about offline, they were, and we talked about last episode, they were starting to challenge artistic standards by doing little weird spins, uh, often very, very subtle spins on what was normal in the pop rock world. Now there was, there were of course other people doing similar things, but no one in the pop rock world, you could look at what was going on in jazz, all sorts of radical things were going on in jazz, but jazz at this point was had, had lost its status as a popular music. It was now art music. And you could also look at someone like Bob Dylan, who was changing the way lyrics were written, but he was a folk singer at this point, and he was a niche. He was still, in 1964, he was still niche. You, you had to be into folk music to know Bob Dylan. But this would all change very, very soon, especially uh, coming from the UK, as, as the British invasion would start during uh, this these albums we're going to talk about today and that you know the beatles success had a lot to do with the huge sort of wave or onslaught of all these new bands that would pop up doing various things and and then of course in the pop rock world there were there were many artists who were commercially successful they just weren't necessarily have the reach of the beatles anyway so the first thing we're starting off with this episode is can't buy me love which was backed with you can't do that which was released on march 16th 1964 and it is notable for many things, one of which was uh, the B-side being the introduction of an instrument, a 12-string electric guitar, which we are going to talk about shortly. But first, we are going to play very briefly the introduction to Can't Buy Me Love. Can't buy me love. Oh, unlike both uh, most Beatles songs uh, singles we were talking about for this podcast, both of these were actually released on the UK version of A Hard Day's Night, the album they released in the summer. And so that's kind of rare for them, but uh, they were released a few months earlier, so that's why we're talking ahead of time. Can't Buy Me Love was a massive hit, and it increased the dominance of the Beatles in the UK charts. UK and US charts, actually. At one point, the Beatles had all five songs in the top five of an American ma- a major American pop chart. And a week later, they had 14 songs in the top 100. That is preposterous. And you can totally understand why there was a reaction to this, a negative one in addition to a positive one. Because I can't imagine turning on the radio, not that I listen to the radio, I can't imagine turning on the radio and the top five songs are by the same band. It's kind of uh, ridiculous. That's a little weird for now. (laughs) Yeah. So the verse that you were just starting to hear at the beginning of is actually uh, remarkably bluesy for a Beatles uh, song. But the chorus 
and the other parts of the song are not remotely bluesy, which is uh, typical of the Beatles at this point. They were combining different pieces from different genres together in the same song. We didn't get to it, but I find George Harrison's solo in this song to be fairly manic, but it's also double-tracked. And at first, the song is two guitars playing the same line, and then it changes where they actually they start playing different lines. And this is relatively early in the era of recording sophistication. So as much as we might be very used to something like that now, it was fairly unusual to do that, to actually have two different guitar solos that you recorded and played next to each other. And then... Uh, I would also thought that just double tracking in general would have been a fairly yeah. new and innovative thing just because of the access to that technology at that time. Well, particularly in the UK, where they had just fewer yeah. tracks, as we talked about in the previous episode or the episode before, I don't remember which, you know, they had access at this point, I think, to four tracks still, maybe eight, whereas in the US, people were already toying with 16. And at some point, a couple of years later, if not a year or two later from this, they had like 64, and well before they did in the UK. So it was just, you couldn't just do stuff like that, especially if you already had, you know, you had the vocals on one track the guitar on one track, the bass on one track, and the drums on one track, you're, you're done, yeah, you're right? Done. Basically. So this, is, this song is probably the best example of the Beatles playing around with the recording studio in that way prior to 1965 when everything, when the rules completely changed for them. It's certainly in terms of uh, how they presented guitar solos. So the B-side, which we didn't play, is notable because it is the rock music uh, debut of the electric 12-string guitar. The electric 12-string was traditionally uh, had been a country instrument since its invention. The 12-string had been a, a country instrument, and then recently it was electrified. If anyone doesn't know the history of electrification of guitars, the six-string guitar started first, and then other instruments, like the, like the bass, for example, was electrified years, I think 15 years or 12 years after the first electric guitar. It just took forever to invent an electric bass guitar. And the electric 12-string guitar was just, it became later than the six-string because it just wasn't as common an instrument. And like I said, it was a country instrument. And uh, the Beatles, this is the first instance, aside from the percussion on their first two albums, of the Beatles introducing a, non, a non-rock instrument into rock music and running with it. And they would do that a bunch more times, most notably with the sitar in about a year and a half. But with the 12-string, it's actually, it's, its presence on this particular song, You Can't Do That, is, is not really notable. But what's notable is what they would do with it very shortly on their uh, album that would, they put out in the summer, A Hard Day's Night, in which it would come to define the sound of folk rock, as well as anything that jangle has ever been applied to ever since. Without this uh, instrument, there is no folk rock, there is no jangle pop, there is no jangle rock. But the song is notable for its lyrics, which are the meanest the Beatles yet recorded, and John Lennon being the author of all of those songs, including this one. It also features uh, one of John Lennon's early guitar solos, which is actually kind of better than some of his later ones. He eventually stopped playing them, basically, because Harrison and McCartney were mostly much better at it. It's also one of the louder songs they had recorded up until this point. And you can already see the divide in songwriting styles here between McCartney, who wrote the A-side, Can't Buy Me Love, and Lennon, who wrote the B-side, You Can't Do That. It is uh, the first, I think, clear indication from the band that they were starting to diverge, even though they were still, the whole time they would credit 
both of them for each song and they were also still writing together this is the first sense you get of a growing concern with different things lyrically so next up uh released a month two months later rather three months later my apologies in june of 64 we have the long tall sally ep now the beatles released many many eps in their existence they released a bunch before this one and they release a bunch after this one and this one is the only one that contains original material every single other ep they released with the exception of magical mystery tour which is a long story which we will get to in in a subsequent episode every other ep they ever released was just like parts of the album they had just put out repackaged as an ep it was this i i was not alive in the 60s and the 50s but one of the things that learning about the past music industry does is it makes you realize how awful they were in terms of like trying to screw consumers because the the Beatles label both both their label in the UK and their and their American label would take they put out an album and then they take four songs from the album and they'd put out an EP even and try to sell to the same people who bought the album and then they take another four songs from the album six months or three months later and do it again and they did this over and over and over again. It's very weird. And people bought it because people were like obsessed with the Beatles. Well, I mean, at least the, uh, the powers that be in the music industry have gotten more ethical over time. <laughs> I mean, they haven't gotten much better, but I don't know how much people are, are I mean, pe- there are remixes and stuff, but I don't know how much people are reselling the exact same music to each other this aggressively as they did in the sixties, you know, like, yeah, there are definitely like too many greatest hits. I mean, it's different now with everything being online, but back when CDs were still the most common thing, there were too many greatest hits and best of compilations really covering the same stuff and that kind of thing. But this was like, this was constant, you know, they would like, they would put out a couple EPs per album. And, and in the U S of course, they put the singles out and then they put the singles on the UK albums too, or uh, substitute onto uh, the U S albums, changing the format. And then they put out EPs. So in the States, there were like, there were sometimes you had the chance of buying the song three times if you were just trying to get the newest record. I don't know. It, it, it strikes me as very strange. So the Long Tall Sally EP is, like I said, aside from Magical Mystery Tour, which is a double EP and a long story, the Long Tall Sally EP is the only EP that just contained music that was not released elsewhere. And it was recorded around the same time as their album that would come out soon, uh, Hard Day's Night. But uh, Long Tell Sally is, is four songs, and it's all but one song as a cover. They're all raucous rock and roll songs, which is a contrast to most of the covers they had, they had done previously. And it's actually a real, a relatively speaking, a radical stylistic departure from a Hard Day's Night, which they were recording at the exact same time. So I have a quote here from Alan Pollock, the musicologist who I recorded a couple times. Here we are in the middle of 1964, where the, this whole musical marketing gamut has culminated to a height virtually unprecedented in all of Western cultural history. I don't say that lightly. I think that's a little extreme, but it's another story. Back to the quote. It would seem with this EP that they were, with almost perverse delight, trying to push their image beyond the envelope and they themselves had established for it by branching out into new subgenres and boring, affecting, impersonating musical roles outside of the ones which were recognizably part of their image and sound during the very first wave. It's as though with the cover songs on this EP, they were saying, surprise, this is what we could be like if we want to be. 
The fact that they could achieve this by dipping backwards into the repertoire for material they have been playing since the dawn of the 60s only goes to make it more ironic. This EP is actually a personal favorite of mine of their early years, even though I, I generally preferred the music they made um, subsequently as well, just because of how like weird, how it stands out and how it is mostly traditional rock and roll rather than what they had been doing. So it starts off with the title track, Long Tall Sally, which is a little Richard cover notable for being it's the first time you really hear Paul McCartney's range in his voice. He imitates Little Richard, but if you've heard Little Richard sing, Little Richard and Paul McCartney don't really sound that much alike, and Paul McCartney's Little Richard impersonation is pretty good. They also, the Beatles, as usual, they changed the key of the song, which is something they did, you know, as we've talked about often with their covers. And they moved some sections around so that it would resemble the structure of their own songs rather than the original version. It also has a very strange George Harrison guitar solo in it. It's actually two of them. And the first one is just rapid strumming and then ends in dissonance, which might have been the first time a rock guitar solo on a British rock out, uh, song had done so. And the second is just walking up scales. And it's notable get to show off the fact that George Harrison was really, really starting to play around with rock and roll guitar technique in a way that at the time, nobody else with his prominence was doing. So now I want to play a little bit of one of the other songs on the EP. I called your name But you're not there Was I to blame For being So that is I Call Your Name. It's the only original song on this EP. And it's the main reason I decided to focus on this EP, because it has nothing really in common with the rest of the three other covers on it. But it is the first attempt, really, from the Beatles to really, really mess around uh, with with time in particular and and, and other sorts of uh, non-rock influences. So, uh, you know, they have been using unusual chords and they had been sort of bringing in some pop stuff, but like that was all still within a certain space. And weirdly, Lennon had written this song actually years prior, which is one of the more remarkable things about it. The bridge that we didn't get to uh, for, for copyright reasons is actually slightly influenced by ska. Uh, and when I say ska, I don't, of course, mean ska revival, which is what everyone in North America thinks Roots. by ska. Of when you say ska, but I mean ska, the yeah, the the thing that actually predated reggae. Yeah, root ska. Yeah, root ska, which, if you don't know the history, is a form of Jamaican music from the fifties and had found its way into which you know is what reggae came from and had found its way into London in the early sixties. Whether or not that influence is there is hard to know because uh, I don't think any in London has 60s? ever admitted it. No, I, yeah. What fifties? Um, fifties or sixties was was that um, that would have been mid sixties that released. This came out in sixty four. This song, yeah. Um, then the Scott connection is really not surprising because that would have been, I think, the very start of when you started to see a lot of the Jamaicans coming over. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I like it. I don't think it'd be that surprising to see someone who is somewhat interested in clearly music that's going on around them because they've never been one to shy away from an influence. Yeah. Um, I don't think seeing a Scott influence there is unheard of. Yeah, so it, it's in the bridge, and the bridge actually, like, 
appears to change time but doesn't change time and it's uh it's just they it's it's apparently it's an oral illusion i i hear a time change but i've asked like professional musicians and they've said no it doesn't change time it's just it's just something about the the vibe of it so it's an illusion of changing tempo but it, it is supposedly from scott and then they of course they do this again at the verse um and and lennon would start doing this all the time with his songs sort of fooling around a little bit with these like subtle changes in meter and stuff but he had never done it before. The Beatles had never done it before. And the Beatles had really not done nothing like this prior. And they also were doing it with this new instrument of theirs, the 12-string guitar, which you heard on the opening there. And I would say, for anyone who is skeptical of the Beatles' influence on music, if you're going to, I mean, if you're going to listen to one song that came out before A Hard Day's Night, for me, this is the Beatles' song. It's wacky. It is out there for the era. Of course, it isn't out there for anything they recorded later, but it is It is certainly notable. And the thing is, nobody knows about it because it's on this EP and it was not on any of their albums. And it really isn't on any of their albums. Like, It hasn't made it onto any compilations either, beyond the singles compilations. Um, Probably because so it's wacky. It's a little wacky. It's, it's nothing compared to later, of course. But So next we have Slow Down, which is the first Larry Williams song that they covered, the Beatles covered. And it features a guitar solo by Lennon this time. Uh, and you can, you can tell because it's not that great. It is fairly tossed off, but it is also fairly raucous rock, rock and roll for the Beatles. And the last song is a song called Matchbox, which is, again, features a Lennon guitar solo. And a, it's, it's another song with a 12-string guitar, and though, though you really can't hear it in this case. And once again, they've changed the key from the original, and they've reordered the session sections like long tall sally so once again they're they're covering songs but they're playing around with them in these ways that are subtle to people who are not really big fans of the original i think the ep is notable because of how like sort of sort of off to the side and 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 sort of inconsequential it feels compared to what was about to happen and it was really out of character with the music they were about to start making that they recorded at exactly the same time and personally as i said before i think i call your name was the most forward-thinking song they had recorded to date. Uh, certainly, if you listen to British music prior to the British invasion, very little sounds this adventurous. And like I said, hard, this, this thing was hard to find in the non-digital age. It was literally on one album the Beatles put out ever, like CD post their recording history, and that's Past Masters Volume 1, their first singles collection, and that's it. And you couldn't find it anywhere else. So anyway, I just wanted to draw attention to that because I think it's one of their landmark recordings. And with that, we are going to proceed to the real landmark recording and the whole point of this episode or this part of this episode, which is A Hard Day's Night, uh, which uh, came out in July of 1964, along with a movie, which I have actually never seen, despite having written a book about the Beatles, which is, I guess, weird. In the uh, UK, the single was backed with a song called Things We Said Today, and in the States, the single is backed with a song called I Should Have Known Better. The album has 13 tracks, and most of them were written entirely or almost entirely by John Lennon. Only a couple were co-written with Paul McCartney, and Paul McCartney wrote a couple, two, I think, by himself, and or no, one, and co-wrote one with Lennon and Harrison. So. I'm mentioning that just because it's important with the band dynamics later on. At this point, John Lennon was absolutely 
the lead songwriter of the band, he was also very much just the band's leader. And that would change drastically. And if you just watched Get Back uh, recently, it's been out since I think it came out in like like December, January, or maybe a little bit earlier. The Peter Jackson expansion of the Let It Be movie to like eight hours. You'll see you hearing that John Lennon was the leader of the band would sound very weird having watched that film because it's very clear who the leader of that band is in that movie. And it's not John Lennon, it's Paul McCartney. So anyway, just throwing that out there. So I am going to very briefly play uh, the first or one of the most famous chords in the history of rock music up to that date. It's been a hard day and uh, that chord um, sort of is an announcement of a, a, a new uh, genre of music. So like the first two Beatles albums, it's really hard for us to hear that a hard day's night is revolutionary. But it basically invented folk rock. It's not that the Beatles were writing straight up folk songs and then using rock instrumentation and rhythms to perform them. That is something that would happen later in the genre. But they brought in a country instrument and they wrote their first ever folk influence songs. Most importantly, they gave the genre its sound, even if they didn't actually cover any folk songs while they were doing it. The band would become basically the the linchpin this album in particular is 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 the launch of the folk rock movement and there's a band that many of us have heard of called the birds who were in the summer of 1964 a group called the jet set they were a folk group they were a trio of three musicians who played acoustic guitars and sang harmonies in cafes and they went and saw this movie and it changed their lives uh, so much so that Jim McGuinn, Jim or Roger McGuinn, depending on when you first learn of him, he went and bought a electric 12-string guitar, and uh, he decided that the band was going to go electric. David Crosby, a fellow Birds member, the, one of the three members of the Jet Set, has, has said in interviews that this uh, film and album changed his life. The reason the Birds are spelled B-Y-R-D-S is because the Beatles are spelled B-E-A-T-L-E-S and not B-E-E-T. The Birds' name is actually a tribute to the Beatles. And why am I focusing on this much? Well, if you were to think of what is the most iconic folk rock song in history, it is Mr. Tambourine Man by the, Be- uh, the Birds. But that exists because the Birds were sitting around watching this movie and listening to this album. It's hard to uh, imagine, basically, the birds existing without this record. With this album, the Beatles set a new standard for rock music. They had written every song on the album, in a number, and the covers were gone. The covers came out on the EP. There were no covers on this record. And it's the first time that rock and roll musicians had really mixed an outside genre with rock and roll music, one that didn't come from the roots of the genre. So you, you hear in... In rock and roll before this, you hear gospel, you hear country, obviously hear rhythm and blues, but all of those things contributed to the birth of rock and roll. Rock and roll was an amalgam of those things together. So it's not weird that people would play rock and roll and then they'd play a little bit of country or play a little, have a little bit of gospel thing. And even the pop influence makes some sense because there was already some crossover. But folk music was this esoteric, weird, hippie thing at the time. It's maybe hard for us to imagine now but folk music in the early 1960s in the united states was essentially art music it wasn't art music musically 
it wasn't like musically sophisticated, but it was music made for intellectual snobs, you know, and beats and people like that. The people who listened to folk music were rich or, or, or poor, but hip. And they, they went and listened in, in cafes and stuff. And it wasn't aside from the Newport uh, folk festival, which also had blues musicians at it. It wasn't a big cultural phenomenon at all. It was a niche thing that you were sort of snobby about as opposed to say country, which was very much, like a blue collar thing. And so bringing folk into rock music was really, it might not seem weird to us now, but it was a weird thing to do because it was not a, a super popular form of music and it was not associated with rock and roll. So this change they made here on this record is something that would come to define the evolution of rock music going forward. It would now become common to take other weird genres of music and bring them in to rock music. It would be a normal thing to do. And that would happen many, many times in the rest of the 60s. It would happen with psychedelia. People brought in uh, Indian music. They brought in jazz. They brought in pop music as well, but notably Indian music and jazz. And, eventually, and depending on where you were in the psychedelic world, there were other genres of music as well, including um, you know, uh, Latin, Latin music in the California psychedelic scene. And then after that, you get country rock comes along where it's break, really bringing in country. It's not just a country influence, but actual like hardcore country music. And then you also have art rock and prog rock, which bring all sorts of different genres of music into rock music. And all this, you could argue, started with this fusion of folk and rock music together. So it's also worth noting that no one else was doing this at the time. I've heard many people pointing out that the Birds and Bob Dylan were doing this at the same time, but they weren't. The Birds didn't exist when this album came out. They literally, as I said, they were called the Jet Set and they changed the name of the Birds and started recording or performing electric instruments because of this album. They wouldn't put out a, a song until the end of the year, the beginning of the next year. Can't remember which. And Bob Dylan had not yet gone electric. He was still just a folk artist. And so his version of folk rock, which would start in 1965, nobody knew about yet. So the last thing I want to say about A Hard Day's Night before we get to the songs is that it's also perhaps the great statement of John Lennon, songwriter from his early days as a Beatle. Um, he wrote the vast majority of the songs on the album, like I said. And though he wasn't at his full maturity as a songwriter, I'd say it's the most dominant role he ever had in the band. John Lennon was the folk music fan. And that's why this record became the birth of folk rock is because he was the one who really, really cared about Bob Dylan and folk music. And uh, it's important that is, as much as he became a better songwriter over the years, it's, it's his interest in this and writing these songs and stuff that caused this to happen. Had Paul McCartney been writing more music, it probably wouldn't, we probably wouldn't be talking about the birth of folk rock with his record. So the title track, as I mentioned, is one of the most famous opening chords in rock history at the time. And it was performed on a brand new 12-string guitar. That 12-string guitar also played the solo, which was the first time, as far as I'm aware, that a solo was played on a 12-string guitar. It is also uh, notable that uh, for a recording trick in which uh, George Martin, the producer, played a piano out of time with the song, and then they sped it up to sound like a harpsichord and doubling George Harrison's solo. So this is, again, a common, common thing nowadays to like to speed an instrument up and match it with another instrument, but like I don't know how often it had happened before this recording, but it was a very unusual thing to do. The song 
ends differently than any previous Beatles song. Uh, they had all ended with chords, like a, just someone playing a final chord. And in this case, uh, it actually ends with fading out arpeggios. And it's the biggest, this song is the biggest sign on the album. And, and really today, the Beatles were doing something no one had ever done before, though I would say I Call Your Name is also up there. And it sounded like nothing else in 1964, which is one of the reasons why it, it caused the birds to essentially start copying this form of music. As I said, it's utterly revolutionary and it's quite hard to hear now because, of course, there have been millions of folk rock songs in the interim. I Should Have Known Better is one of John Lennon's first attempts to write more like Dylan. It's based on, well, sorry, I should say, first of all, that that ambition fails. He's let, John Lennon is still singing about girls, even though he's singing about regret this time. But it's the first time that John Lennon was really trying to stretch his writing style. It is the last Beatles song with a harmonica intro. So that device, which they had done to death in their first two albums, is now done. This is the last one of them. Thanks, science, because that is not a personal thing that I, I, I love. And that had been done to distinguish themselves from other British bands, and I guess they didn't feel like they needed to anymore. It also features the unique form of three verses and then a bridge, which again shows them just playing around with conventions in a way that few other people were. The next song is If I Fell. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true? And help me understand, cause I've been in love before, and I found that love was more than just which is a little more interesting and unconventional is the first Beatles song with an intro that is never repeated. It also lacks a chorus. I think the fact that it lacks a chorus is kind of weird and, and neat and unusual. The hook is in the verse instead. It was actually released as a single later on at Christmas, which is interesting, but they did that a lot. The Beatles would, you know, we were only talking about the major Beatles singles in this podcast. The Beatles would regularly release album tracks as singles later on because their labels like to release their music over and over again, but also because they would chart. So why not? I think it's also proof of John Lennon's growing lyrical maturity because he is wondering about his, act, his future actions that he hasn't taken yet, which is, again, for a genre concerned with cars, cars, and girls, sort of relatively deep-ish, I guess. I'm Happy Just to Dance With You was written Explicitly for George Harrison to sing, and he did. He wasn't allowed to contribute to a, a song to this album, which is, of course, a thing that is going to keep popping up over and over again for the rest of their existence. Neither, uh, no one is really happy with this song, but it is kind of wacky. It opens with a part of the bridge rather than an intro or a verse, and also it features some elaborate percussion by Ringo Starr, a drum identified only as African drum. I don't actually know which type of drum it was. Um, but they were becoming very experimental with the percussion choices, both Star and the other Beatles who had start who had started playing percussion on their songs using the miracles of overdubbing. Uh, but it's probably the least notable song on this record. Though George Harrison released uh, received no credit for it, he apparently came up with the riff for the next song, and I love her, Paul McCartney's song. that was trying to sound like a show tune even though it is actually an acoustic number it's a little more subdued than the the covers they had done the show tune covers they had done before but it 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 is illustrative of what they were doing like i mentioned with this boy the previous episode they were starting to write songs in lieu of the covers they would have normally put in these places so they they were like well we want to do another show tune song let's write one 
And instead of actually writing a conventional musical uh, song from a musical, they wrote something different that was influenced by it. They, they were just like, they were mixing and matching in a way that just doing a, a straight up cover wouldn't have, have done so. In this case, the form is weird again, two verses, a bridge, and then three verses. And once again, weird chords that they, uh, they were you know, not expected to be using. This might've been the song that, Bob Dylan was thinking of when he called their chord changes ridiculous, by the way. It's just my guess, but I think it might be. The next track is Tell Me Why, uh, a raucous song after the, and I didn't make clear, and I love her as a ballad. It's a relatively hard, hard rock version for the era of a doo-wop song, but without the doo-wop vocals, which is a very typical Beatles. Take, take something and then like screw around with it. It's also a, it's also lyrically evidence of Lennon's misogyny, which is going to become a, a fairly frequent frame, at least in this part of, of his songwriting, because I assume his, his relationship wasn't going well or something like that. The next track is Anytime at All, which uh, is, is structured a little bit like a, a folk song, but doesn't sound anything like a folk song. And it's, I guess, the closest thing we would get to what folk rock would soon sound like once the birds got their hands on it. The Middle Eight, or Bridge, uh, which was written by Paul McCartney. Is apparently uh, hugely influential on Burt Bacharach, but I couldn't find actual definitive proof of that. I just heard people say it. In fact, I heard Beatles fans and and scholars say it, so I, I take it with a grain of salt. It is the second song on the album to feature the piano guitar matching trick in the solo, though it's a little more subtle this time, and I don't believe they sped the piano up this time. I think it was recorded at normal speed. But I do want to point out with this that this is the second like tape sort of tape manipulation trick on the album, and, and that was really uncommon in the summer of 1964. And I think if you were a musician and you learned about this in 1964, you would have been quite interested. Also, lastly, the coda of this song kind of sounds like it should be the intro in another song, which I find fascinating. The next track is I'll Cry Instead, uh, which is uh, another lyrical change for the Beatles because it's lyrics about rejection, which was becoming a common thing for them, even though they were really, really, really popular. And uh, that's, you know, we're grasping at straws here with looking for lyrical sophistication in, in rock and roll in 1964, but like there's, there's a little bit of it. It is basically the first Beatles original to attempt a traditional uh, traditional country, which was something they had covered before and would cover again in the future, but really hadn't written that much. And of course, it's notable that country songs would actually become quite common in the folk rock world. And I don't know if that has something to do with this track, but it could be, I mean, the birds were, were playing country very early on in their history. And, you know, obviously Bob Dylan would have a country influence as well. So it's worth noting that, yeah, even, even when they were embracing this new style they created, there was some country influence creating it influence creeping in from other genres the next track is think we uh, things we said today uh, another mccartney ballad you say you will love me if i have to go you'll be thinking of me somehow which is again rather sophisticated lyrically for the era though again not that sophisticated. It's about being wistful, about looking back to the present from the future, which is a relatively weird thing 
for a pop song from 1964. It is one of the few Beatles songs at this point to be so clearly in a minor key. It is also in a mode and indicates, once again, this is probably the second track that indicates Paul McCartney was listening to jazz at the time, though the jazz influence is very, very subtle and even more subtle than that one track from the previous episode we talked about, which essentially quoted Dave Brubeck. This is much more subtle than that. Uh, when I Get Home, the next track is a somewhat unconventional song because it jumps keys. It's very understandable to think that a less forward-thinking producer than George Martin would have not let them do stuff like this, but George Martin seemed to be on board with it. He didn't seem to care. He encouraged him. We're not sure which. And now it's a very common thing to jump keys, but you know it wasn't really in 1964. So. It also, it's worth noting as well, one other thing about this, that the chorus begins the song and each verse. So they, the chorus is first, which is weird. And, and you know, anybody who's very familiar with song pop song conventions knows that that is not how it's supposed to go. Lastly, we have I'll Be Back, which also jumps keys, but is a slightly flamenco sounding uh, acoustic ballad rather than a rock and roll song. And once again, there is no chorus because that's what they were doing now. And um, they tried... They tried to sing it in 6-8, and if, you, if you're interested at all, you can grab a copy of the first anthology and listen to them trying to perform it in 6-8, but John Lennon couldn't do it. He actually starts, like he actually breaks down in the middle of the song saying he can't sing it, and so they didn't get that on record. They just did it in normal 4-4, but the fact that they were trying it, I think, is notable because, again, they were just sort of like doing whatever they wanted in a way that really was unprecedented for a band like this. Not everything worked, as evidenced by the fact that they didn't manage to do I'll Be Back in 6-8, but enough of it worked that it, you know... They were uh, cool. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say that this album is leaps and bounds beyond what the Beatles had done the previous year, whether it's Please Please Me or with the Beatles. And Rolling Stone has noted they had set the new standard for rock bands. Now rock bands were expected to progress from one album to the next. You can look at With the Beatles as being Please Please Me Too. You can't look at Hard Day's Night as that. It's a completely different record. It invented its uh, new genre. And now you have a rock band that's being... Some people are, are... Critics are actually thinking about them with the same kind of way they would think about classical or jazz musicians. But also they're saying this idea that rock musicians have to progress. If you go back and you listen to Elvis or Chuck Berry or Little Richard or um, Johnny Cash, or I mean, Johnny Cash may be a little, a little more interesting in terms of this aspect, but the rest of those guys putting out record after record after record that sounded the same, you know, and the Beach Boys too, early on, their records are just, you know, the same things over and over again. And the Beatles did that at first. and then. With this record, they stopped. So just to ground us for the summer of 1964, I want to just include some, some notable people from the 60s and what they were up to in the summer of 1964. So the Beach Boys had included Bars of Silence in a song, which was a radical, radical thing. But that was the only thing they had done in terms of radical innovate, recording innovations. They were still very much writing songs about cars and girls. And... Ryan Wilson, I don't think he quit touring just yet, but he was thinking about it because of, of course of his mental health problems. But they had yet to get start doing the things that they would do slightly later that would make them some people believe that they were the equal of the Beatles in terms of creative you know, innovation. 
as I mentioned before, the birds didn't exist yet. They were a trio called the Jet Set, and they wouldn't really be the birds properly until shortly after this. Bob Dylan had not yet gone electric. He was still a folk singer, although he was the most important folk singer in the English language at the time. He was still just a folk singer. The Kinks, to pick on a British band, had not yet released a song. They would put out a song in the fall and they would have their first hit, but they hadn't done it yet. The Rolling Stones were just beginning their first tour of the United States that summer, helping to kick off the British invasion, but they were basically unknown outside the UK when this album came out, and they were mostly a cover band at this point, including playing multiple songs the Beatles had written for them. The Velvet Underground, who are arguably one of the most important bands in the late 1960s, were a folk combo called the Primitives, practicing in their apartments they had yet to play a live show. The Who were actually a band, one of the biggest rock bands of the 60s and 70s, actually were still called the high numbers and were just performing in clubs they had not quite yet released their first song if i'm oh no i got that wrong they had released a song but then they were they had released the single but then they did this weird thing where they changed their name for a while and tried to see if the branding would a uh, new rebranding would help and it didn't go well and then they would put out new songs sorry it's been a while since i uh thought about their career at this point and someone who is less famous than these people but i think worthy of a lot of attention from the 1960s. Frank Zappa had just purchased a studio and was experimenting and didn't have any music. And so those are some notable 60s musicians who I wanted to mention who were not where the Beatles were in the summer of 1964. So lastly, uh, for this episode, I want to talk about I Feel Fine, backed with She's a Woman, a single that was put out in November of 1964. <laughs> So that was the first use of feedback on a single. And mm. uh, the Beatles did that because they could. Now, it doesn't sound like the feedback we're familiar with today. <laughs> it was a lot <laughs> no. less aggressive. But that is a uh, thing that they did. They put out a single that began like that. And they did it because they were the most popular band in the world and they could do it. It is the first, I feel fine, is the uh, first obviously riff-driven song in the Beatles canon. You could hear it beginning, the riff beginning there. But the feedback was on purpose. It was, it was done by accident in the studio, but then it was left in on purpose. It was apparently very confusing to at least UK DJs at the time who thought there was something wrong with the mastering, but it was you know, completely deliberate. Now, if you listen to Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, the Who single that came out in May 1965, so that is you know seven months later, you will hear a lot more aggressive feedback in the solo. But I feel fine was first, and it, like I said, it was a deliberate choice. And now, it when it happened the first time in studio, it wasn't no one had planned to do it. But the Beatles were very uh, willing to adapt and willing to include anything interesting that happened. They were, they liked their happy accidents. I guess is a good way of putting it. If something happened and they liked the sound of it, they would use it. And so though no one intended to do this, this is what happened, and they, they stuck it in there. It's also interesting to think of it from a producer and engineer standpoint. They had to convince their producer and their engineer to let them do it. And I don't know what those conversations were like, but once again, I think it's notable that George Martin was like, sure, let's, let's do this. Let's put feedback at the beginning of the song before the song starts. And now if they had been unknown, if they had not had a hit yet, I don't think anyone would have released it, but because they were the biggest band in the world, they did. It, the B-side is uh, She's a Woman, 
which is Paul McCartney's attempt to write a Little Richard song and features once again another one of his great vocal performances. It is likely the bluesiest song they ever recorded together, um, though there are a few outtakes on the anthology that might fit this. It's uh, probably not on par with Little Richard's best songs, but I think it's still a pretty good performance by them. Paul McCartney may have played the guitar solo, which might have been the first time he played an electric guitar solo on a Beatles song that had become very common later on. And it is, uh, it's just like a, a contrast as, as it was becoming a theme for them. It's a contrast with the, the A-side, which would be a thing going forward where they really deliberately tried to, you know, have two different sounds on the record, on the single record specifically. 